Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Our uh, readings for today is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. Um, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you don't know who I am, uh, I'm Jacko, uh, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Um, And uh, yeah, it's lovely to see you all this morning. If you were tempted to close your Bible or close down your app, uh, please do keep open uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 to 16. Uh, That would be a really good thing to do. Um, We are, if you've been around for a little while, we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, learning about what happened with this church back in the year sort of AD 54, 55 and thereabouts. But uh, let's pray as we come to the word of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we've, we've sung this morning, you are a good, good father. You are perfect in all of your ways. And so we praise you for that, Lord, and we come to you, your good and perfect word this morning, and just ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face, and in him find life, life to the full both now and forevermore. And so, Father, be at work by your spirit through your words. Father, help me to speak faithfully and with power this morning. And Lord, with the ears that you have given each one of us, that you've carved out into our heads, Father, help us to hear you this morning, that we might leave here changed and a little bit more like Jesus. And Father, a bit more sold out to what you and he and the Spirit are doing in the world. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you were here last week, uh, or if you've caught up via the podcast that we have, um, you'll remember that we saw last week, and we've actually seen over the weeks gone by, that Corinth, this city to which Paul wrote this letter, was a successful city. It was a sex-obsessed city. It was a sophisticated city. It was a kind of a prideful city. Um, and it, uh, it was a proud city. Particularly, it was proud of its um, some star attractions in this place, including, believe it or not, uh, public speakers. 
and they were proud of their public speaking competitions. Now, we don't really have them very much anymore, um, but uh, that was what Corinth really loved. And we looked at last week, right, um, I used the illustration about my friend Heidi, who I was on a debating team with, who won the debate that I was in, and we were looking bad, right? We were going to go down in that speaking competition. Um, But Heidi got up, produced this amazing speech, right, which was completely fake, quoting statistics from a PhD by a guy named McAllister, and so won the audience that we won the debate and took home the trophy. Um, Corinth was known for its public speakers. It didn't really matter if the public speakers were telling the truth or what they had was even sensible. If it sounded great, then it won the day, right? Didn't matter. Um, here's a cartoon that I found. It's not quite the same, um, but it's a, it's a picture of a show that called Facts Don't Matter. And it says here, I'm sorry, Jeannie, your answer was correct, but Kevin shouted his incorrect answer over yours, so he gets the point. There you go. That was kind of Corinth, right? Um, didn't matter if it was correct or not. If you sounded better, if you were a bit louder, you won. You were more impressive. Those, in those days, people really loved listening to people make speeches. The really clever ones, right, would, would offer to speak on any subject that anyone in the audience kind of just yelled out. I think that would be terrifying to me, by the way, if I just sort of put it out there and you said, Jacko, speak on this today. I think I would just leave the building. But that was what the Corinthians were on about. And then the person upon that would sort of stand up and make this witty, persuasive speech showing off all kinds of verbal skills and techniques. And then the people would judge, right, and award whoever they thought was best. It was a bit like an ancient version of like the X Factor or, I don't know, Australia's Got Talent or something like that. It was all good entertainment. And those who were really good at it were called sophists the clever ones, and it's from, where, it's from that where we get the word sophisticated from. Some of them became famous celebrity, celebrities. They were treated as models of great wisdom, and they earned heaps of money. Not a lot has changed, right, has it, today? Um, it seems from what we know, right, that the church at Corinth, the new Christians living in Corinth, also liked that sort of thing. They found the Apostle Paul a bit disappointing, a little bit dull, actually. Even though Paul was the one who'd come to the city, led many of them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, some of them preferred Apollos. We met him a couple of weeks ago, who came from the great city of Alexandria, uh, where there was a university, and probably Apollos was much more polished in the way that he spoke and taught and preached. Now, it wasn't because Paul couldn't speak like that. Paul the Apostle was very educated, He would have studied rhetoric. And later in his second letter to the Corinthians, he actually mimics these highfalutin kind of boastful speeches with a bit of his own kind of boasting and rhetoric. But he chose not to use the so-called verbal sophisticated wisdom. And he tells us in the first five verses of chapter two, we looked at this last week, he deliberately avoided that and spoke his message simply and clearly, focusing on the cross of Christ. And the result of that, right, those who'd come to faith in Jesus knew that they'd been persuaded by the power and the grace of God and the truth and the Holy Spirit, not by Paul's clever tactics and teaching and techniques. But you see, that created another problem. 
You see, all Paul's talk about the foolishness of God and avoiding wisdom might have led some of the Christians in Corinth to think that Paul was rejecting like any kind of wisdom at all. So Paul now corrects this misunderstanding in the first part of the passage we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 6 and following, where he says this. He says, oh yes, Paul says, verse 6, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Or as J.B. Phillips puts it in his translation, it's not what is called wisdom by this world, nor by the powers that be, who will soon be only the powers that have been. Now, the wisdom that Paul brought to the city of Corinth was not the stuff that empty-headed audiences gawked at and gasped at down in the town square. No, it was for the mature. By which Paul meant not some kind of super spiritual, clever kind of elite people, but simply those who were growing up in their faith that they'd come to know in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which ought to be true for every single follower of Jesus in Corinth, ought to be true of every single believer here in North Adelaide. Just growing up in the faith that we've come to know in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this wisdom that Paul speaks about then? It brings us to our first point today. Point one, if you're a note taker, it should be on the screen. The mystery of God's wisdom, the crucified Lord of glory. That's the mystery of God's wisdom, the crucified Lord of glory. This is verses 6 to 9 in our passage. Uh, take a look with me firstly at verse 7. No, says Paul, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Okay. Now, when Paul talks about mystery here, a mystery that had been hidden, we know from other places in the New Testament uh, where Paul uses the same kind of language, so the book of Colossians or Paul's letter to the Ephesians, what he means is the scriptures of the Old Testament, that they're part of the Bible, the, you know, the, the chunkier half of our kind of scriptures. And how the Old Testament speaks of God's great plan and God's great purpose for his world. So you go right back, right? Like back to Genesis chapter 1, right? God makes the world and it's good, 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 good. I think that was six, you know, and then it was very good. God makes this wonderful creation and then you turn the page, right, and you jump into chapter 3 and everything goes like pear-shaped. We whom God has made in his image, we turn our back on our creator and everything plunges into darkness. That's sin. Sin is just simply rejecting our maker. God, I'll take your stuff, I'll just reject you. It's kind of what we do. But even way back, right, in the Garden of Eden, in the midst of the calamity and the collapse of kind of everything, God makes this wonderful promise, right, that a son born to Adam and Eve will come to crush the serpent's head. And, and defeat and destroy sin and evil and the devil once and for all. I've said this before, right? The whole of the Old Testament, right, is looking for that one person to come, the one born of a woman, to crush evil and defeat sin altogether. And that's, 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 the, that's the trajectory of the Scriptures. And then you get Abraham, right? Just a few chapters later, chapter 12, God promised Abraham, through you, through your people, that is the people of Israel, Israel, 
all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then you go, you get to the prophet Isaiah, 800 years before the coming of Jesus, and God, through the prophet Isaiah, promises that one day, one day, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. And there'll be a whole new creation. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more death, no more dying, no more grief, no more pain, no more conflict, no more war, peace. But how? But how? How is God going to bring about all of these things? That was the mystery. You see, the people of Israel knew that God had a plan for salvation for the world, but no one really knew how God would accomplish it, but God knew. And God knew what it would cost, the cost that God himself would bear. For God had planned that he would enter the world in real human flesh. Then God, as God incarnate, as God the Son, God would take upon himself all of the sin, all of the evil of the world. He would bear it. He would suffer it. He would absorb it. Dealing with it once and for all. That was the plan of God. And what a wonderful plan it was. As Paul says, hidden for ages and beyond any human imagination. That's what we see in verse 9. It was a plan that God himself would fund, bearing the cost entirely for our salvation. It was a plan that would lead where? Where? It's not a rhetorical question. Where is it leading? To the cross. To the cross. Where God reconciled himself to the whole of creation, heaven and earth, reconciled himself through the blood and the body of Jesus shed on the cross, as Paul says in Colossians. So you see, in God's wisdom, the cross was the destination of God's plan, hidden and mysterious until it actually happened. Even though the Old Testament scriptures kind of pointed to it, as Jesus himself told his disciples and taught them after his resurrection, whereas Luke records these words for us, Luke 24. Then Jesus, this is after Jesus has died for the sins of the world and raised a new life. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. goes on. Oh, Oh, sorry, that's it, that's it. Sorry, they're very good. Um, too quick. That's what Jesus told them. I will, the, the Son of Man will come, he will suffer, and then he will rise again on the third day. And that's what the Holy Spirit has now revealed to Paul. But then Paul throws in a somewhat ironic twist, right, in verse 8. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He means here, of course, like the political and the religious authorities of the day and the powers of evil and Satan who were kind of working behind the scenes through these people. You see, they thought they were crucifying Jesus and as they were doing that, they were getting rid of a troublemaker. Um, The Romans hated troublemakers, right? So they did everything they could to kind of get rid of those people. That's what they thought they were doing. Little did they know, though, that by thinking to destroy Christ, they were actually fulfilling the mission of Jesus. Not knowing the purpose of God, they were actually fulfilling the purposes of God. 
That's what Peter told the crowds right, on the day of Pentecost, that day when God poured out his Holy Spirit and enabled people to come to know Jesus. Um, on that day, Peter says you know, to this crowd that you've crucified Jesus, but, in God's plan, but it was God's plan all along. Um, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And so when Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father to forgive the Roman soldiers who were driving the nails through his hands and his feet because he said they don't know what they're doing, Jesus was right at a very deep level. They had no idea that they were actually accomplishing the glorious plan of God that would enable them to be forgiven. They didn't know who it was that they were yanking up the cross that day and nailing him to it. They had no idea, as Paul says, that they'd crucified the Lord of glory. What a paradox that is. That's the language that the Old Testament uses to describe the living God, the Lord of glory. Psalm 24, verse 10. Who is he, the King of glory, the Lord Almighty? He is the King of glory. And yet beyond all imagination, says Paul, it was when God was on the cross that God was reigning as the Lord of glory. You see, that was the astonishing upside-down wisdom of God. That God had planned for our salvation, planned for our glory, as Paul puts it in verse 7. And God's wisdom had planned all this before the beginning of time itself. The cross, the cross was in the mind of God before the world even began. Isn't that amazing? I can't quite comprehend that, right? But it's extraordinary. The cross was in the mind of God before the world even began. But Paul, right? But Paul, we want to cry this. But Paul, how, how do you know all this, Paul? Where on earth did you get this understanding from, Paul? You know, Paul, who told you this? Who told you that the cross was something that God had planned all along? How do you know this? And Paul says, well, verse 10, these are the things that God has revealed to us, to me, by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul unpacks in the remaining verses we have before us today, chapter, uh, verses 10 through to 16. Um, we've seen, like, Paul contrasts the the foolish so-called wisdom of this world with the mystery of God's wisdom, that the mystery of God's wisdom is the crucified Lord of glory, this upside-down wisdom that leads to salvation. Paul understands that the plan of God that led to the cross of Christ was something that was revealed to him through the Spirit, and he now goes on to explain that further. And so here's our second point for this morning, the ministry of God's Spirit revealing the mind of God. The ministry of the Spirit is to reveal the mind of God, verses 10 through to 16. Now, when we think about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit is not only connected like, to, to miraculous signs and miraculous wonders, the Spirit is not only connected to sort of speaking in tongues or, or other particular gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit is the Spirit of revelation, which is, of course, is exactly what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do when he came. 
You might be you know, an avid Bible reader, you might know this already, but in Jesus' last conversation with his disciples before he was crucified, he told them that he would send the Holy Spirit upon his death and ascension, resurrection and ascension, he'd send the Spirit to carry on teaching them all that God the Father and God the Son wants them to know. Um, here's what Jesus said, uh, John chapter 16, verse 13 to 15. Jesus speaking, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us this morning in verses 10 through to 16, and particularly verse 10. It's just simply the Holy Spirit doing his job to reveal this mystery, to reveal these truths to us. Now, Paul continues to explain this all the way through these last few verses, 10 through 16. And I think we see here four really important things in these verses. And here's the first one. God's thoughts can be known because the Holy Spirit reveals them. God's thoughts can be known because the Holy Spirit reveals them. This is verse 11 and 12. Um, Paul uses in these verses, we're about to read them in a minute, uh, Paul uses in these verses a really simple human analogy, right? Um, that everybody knows their own mind, yeah? Everybody knows their own mind, as we say. I mean, only you know what's going on in your mind, like right this very minute, right? I, I don't really know what you're going. Maybe you're going, will he ever stop talking today? I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, like, we don't know. You know, and I can say to you, right, I don't know, who, who can I pick on this morning? I can pick on Jesse. I know exactly what you're thinking right now, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. You know, we say that, oh, I, know exa- I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I could be totally wrong unless Jesse actually tells me what he's thinking. I don't really want to know, by the way, but, you know, um, that's, that's how it works. But if you speak your mind, then I know your thoughts, well, at least as much as someone is prepared to tell me. And it's the same with the living God, says Paul. Only God knows his own mind, and there is no way we could know the thoughts in the mind of God on our own. But the Spirit of God chooses to share God's thoughts with us. God has spoken his mind through the Holy Spirit. See our verses again, verse 11 and 12. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. Did you get that last bit? God revealed his mind through the Spirit so that we can understand. Not to understand everything there is to know about everything in the world, including God himself, but understand what God has freely given to us. That is the truth that we need to know for salvation. And the truth that is freely available for us to know and to understand. And this is so contrary, right, to popular sentiment in the world today, our postmodern kind of world, that basically believe that, you know, we can't really know anything real. There is no real objective truth. Truth is just up for grabs, whatever you want it to be. 
All knowledge is subjective, it's relative, it's conditional. And if there is a God, then, well, we really can't know him with certainty. We just go on seeking and searching and creating all kinds of religions and ideas and theories, but they're all just kind of guesses at the end of the day. No, Paul insists. He says we can know the truth, even the deep things of God, as he says in verse 10. Not because we find it all out by some kind of religious or spirituality of our own, but simply because God in his grace and mercy has revealed it. But how has God's thoughts can be known, sorry, God's thoughts can be known because the Spirit reveals them. But how has the Spirit done his job of revealing the mind of God? Well, of course, through his word, which we now have in our Bibles. That brings me to my next point, right? Secondly, God's word can be trusted because the Holy Spirit taught the words. God's word can be trusted because the Holy Spirit taught the words. Now, Paul already believed this, right, about the scriptures that we call the Old Testament, that big chunky bit at the beginning of our Bibles. That's what he says when he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's what we also come across when uh, the Apostle Peter tells us, right? Um, He says um, that the prophets, though human, you know, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah, Micah, Obadiah. I'm really scared about meeting Obadiah, you know, in the new creation. He's going to come up to me and say, so did you read my book? (laughs) I'm going to go, I think I did that in 2009, but I can't quite remember what you said. No, anyway, I probably should go and read Obadiah. But anyway, you know, but you know, through the prophets, Peter says, right, God spoke through the prophets, but he spoke, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you've got um, all scripture is God breathed. All of the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit, even though they're all different, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and they wrote down the words of God. And look now what Paul says about his preaching and his teaching and his writing, like the letter we have right in front of us today. He says, verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. You see, Paul is saying this is how the Holy Spirit has done his job in teaching Jesus' followers all that they were to pass on to others and all that we now have in our New Testament today. He's saying that the Spirit didn't just kind of like drop ideas or little concepts into the minds of the writers of the New Testament and they say, off you go, just go and write whatever you want now based on those big ideas and concepts. No. Paul says, God's truth needs God's word to communicate clearly and powerfully what God wants us to know and to believe. And that is what we have in our Bibles. Words taught by the Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit. Now that didn't take away the varied human personalities, right, of those who've authored the 66 books that comprise the Bible. 
I mean, we can just see actually how human the Apostle Paul actually is when he gets a little bit confused about who he's baptised and how many people he's baptised back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember back in chapter 1 um, where he gets, a bit, he gets actually corrected by Stephanus? Um, Stephanus was probably there sitting in the room as Paul dictated the letter and like, Paul's a little bit like, oh, I forget. And Paul goes, and Stephanus goes, well, you baptised us, man. Like, you know, something like that. I don't know, maybe that's not what he said, but like something like that. But the point is, through these totally human messengers, God has given us the Word of God. Words taught by the Spirit of God. And I think this means for us two really quick but really important things. First is this. We can trust our Bibles. We can trust the Scriptures. For God himself can be trusted. And what we have in our hands comes from the revealing work of God's Spirit. Every time we open our eyes, every time we open our hearts to read and listen to the Word of God in these Bibles, we can trust what we read. Do you believe that? Because these are words taught by the Spirit. Um, This was actually, I've got a bonus point here that came to me this morning as I was coming to church. Um, We can trust our Bibles. And and I think the sort of second thing I want to say here is that we can trust them and that when we are really feeling anxious and lost and struggling, we can depend on the Word of God to remind us of the things we need to know, that we are loved by a good, good Father that God's promises are sure and certain. Now, many of you know I've, I've wrestled at times with depression and anxiety, and, and particularly over the last sort of six to seven weeks, I've really been struggling at times to, with that sort of depression and anxiety. And I've been waking up, you can talk to Adele, I've been waking up like at 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning most days the last little while, just anxious. I don't know why. And, you know, you know, I don't know if anyone experiences that, but when you wake up and you just, like, it's dark and everything just seems really bleak and confusing. And sometimes I do those things where you sort of try to soothe your soul a little bit. You try to work out what's going on. But one of the things I do, I reach for this. And I reach and remind myself of the promises of God. And in that moment, God is really kind and I can depend on this when I'm feeling lost and anxious and uncertain, I can depend on the word of God. That all his promises find their yes in Jesus and not one of God's promises has ever failed. It doesn't mean that I don't wake up the next day at 2 a.m. in the morning anxious again, but I know that I can depend on the word of God. We can trust our Bibles. Secondly, or maybe thirdly, we need to pray that God's spirit will help us as we read our Bibles for ourselves, in our DGs, wherever we might be, to understand what he wants to teach us through the words that he originally inspired. Of course, we make the most of all the good academic tools that we have, the commentaries, the books, the, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, let's be honest, right? The Bible is not always straightforward and easy to understand. Even Peter said that about some of Paul's writings. So if you go, whoa, Paul, I have no idea what you're saying, you're in good company, right? The Apostle Peter thinks pretty similar. 
So yes, we must study, but we also need the Spirit of God who has revealed it, and we need him to be our teacher and our guide. Charles Spurgeon, uh, a great Baptist preacher from way back, um, used to... um, that one of the churches he preached at had like, I don't know, it was like this 16 steps that he had to climb up to kind of get into the pulpit. I think we need one here, all right? You know, like a big high pulpit so I can be over the top. No, you know, he would climb up 16 steps. Like it was quite a walk. And someone once said to him, like, what are you thinking about? What are you doing when you're climbing all those stairs? He says, I pray. And someone said, what do you pray? He says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 That the Holy Spirit would take the words that are being thought about that day in the Scriptures and his words and make them his own. So when you sit down in your DGs and you open the Word of God and you pray, it's not just a perfunctory thing that you're meant to do because, well, Christians gather in small groups and drink tea and play board games and we pray and, you know... Because you want the Holy Spirit to be your teacher and your guide as you open up the words that he himself has inspired. We can trust the word of God. The word of God is a wonderful balm for our anxious souls like mine in the morning. And we should pray. So God's thoughts, let me summarise. God's thoughts can be known because the Holy Spirit reveals them. God's word can be trusted. Thirdly, God talk can be nonsense until the Holy Spirit gives understanding. God talk can be nonsense until the Holy Spirit gives understanding. In in verse 4, Paul picks up, sorry, verse 14, Paul picks up something that he'd said earlier in chapter 1. He says that those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, who have not yet received God's spirit, often can find the whole Christian message kind of completely stupid or foolish or nonsensical, right? I'm sure you've experienced that. So verse 14, Paul says, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through spirit. So brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when this happens. If you have, you know, I'm sure most of us do, not yet Christian friends, not yet Christian family members. You know, and when you talk about God and Jesus and the Bible, and they kind of look at you and go, you're an idiot. At least they may not say that, but they might look at you like that. That's no reason to stop talking. I mean, be sensitive, right? Don't be a a punk. But, you know, like... There's no reason to stop talking. It's no reason to hide your faith away. No, it's a motivation to pray. We read this passage together as elders a couple of weeks ago, and I'm stealing Sam's idea. Sam said, you know, when we looked at this, Sam says, when I read this, it's motivation to pray. That God would graciously send his Holy Spirit to, to take the scales from people's eyes, to unstop deaf ears and to soften hard hearts, that people would come by God's Spirit through his grace to see, to hear and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to do and that's what happens when God turns the lights on metaphorically. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So let's pray that that would happen for our family members, for our friends, for all of North Adelaide, for thousands across our city and our country and our world, that God, by his grace, as the gospel is proclaimed with passion and zeal, that many would come to know Jesus and find life in him. Can't happen unless the Spirit turns the lights on. But practically, practically, like brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today, like maybe that family member, maybe that friend, maybe what you could do is just invite them to to read the gospel with you. And no doubt, as you do that with someone, there's going to be times where people say, like, you believe this? doesn't mean you shrink back. It means you pray. Invite someone to read the gospel with you. Perhaps you're here this morning today and, and you'd like to know more about this whole Christian thing. Maybe you just go, it just sounds a bit foolish and nonsensical to me, but it's something about it that makes me a little bit interested. Can I encourage you today, fill out one of the connect forms up at the back. Myself or one of our leaders will be pleased to sit down with you and describe the Christian faith and read the word with you. And so we come to Paul's final point. See, in this passage, God's thoughts can be known. God's word can be trusted. God's talk can seem like nonsense without the, hope of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, God's wisdom can be ours because the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. God's wisdom can be ours because the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. This is from verse 16. And it's actually in this, it's an astonishing climax to this little section. Paul quotes again from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And in one sense, Paul's stating the bleeding obvious here, isn't he, right? I mean, God doesn't need us to teach him. God knows his own mind. A little bit later in the book of Isaiah, a book, a prophecy given, you know, 800 years or so before Jesus came. A little bit further, um, Isaiah will say that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. They are infinitely higher than ours. But here's the thing. Like, here's the amazing thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God has given us his spirit, who in turn reveals the thoughts of God... We can answer that question, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord with a humble but confident, we do. We do. Because we have, verse 16, the mind of Christ. Now, at one level, Paul is speaking about himself and he's speaking about the other apostles, but I'm sure Paul will include all believers here in this great affirmation. That is, if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit helps us so that we can know the mind of Christ who dwells within us. And what does that mean in practice for us? What does it mean that we have the mind of Christ? Well, I don't know. Do you remember these things? Those? Anyone have one of those? Anyone get one? Don't be shamed. What would Jesus do? I reckon Kurong made a killing on those things, like at one stage, right? Um, those bands, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, not about to get into an argument whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but that's just what we got into. But having the mind of Christ, I think, means that we 
should actually ask a different question as we face each day. And it's WWJT, not what would Justin Timberlake kind of do. Um, <laughs> what would Jesus think? We've been given by the Spirit of God the mind of Christ. And so the question I think is more, not so much what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus think? What would Jesus think about this relationship? What would Jesus say to that person? How would Jesus respond to this problem? What would Jesus' attitude to what someone else saw has done or what I have done? What decision would Jesus come to in this choice that I have to make? You see, that's what it means to, to think like Jesus, to have the mind of Christ. So as we close, let's, let's invite the Holy Spirit day by day into our lives to enable us to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to live like Jesus. For his glory, for our good, and ultimately, prayerfully, for the salvation of others. Those we know, those we don't yet know. Should we pray together? Let's pray. As Paul writes, we've not received the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God, so that we can understand what God has freely given us. So Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the Spirit. We praise you for the Bible. Words taught by your Holy Spirit revealing your mind and your heart. Revealing your plan for salvation. And so we thank you this morning, Heavenly Father, for your Spirit's work in revealing you and your Son to us. Father, we thank you that the Spirit reveals to us a good, good Father. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has helped us, enabled us, Lord, to see Jesus and understand your upside-down wisdom and the foolishness of the cross. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way that you continue to be at work in our lives, revealing the truth of the Scriptures that you taught. So, Lord, this morning... And as we continue to live for you, make us truly spiritual people. Protect us from arrogance and pride. Keep us humble and thankful. And Father, we do pray for any here today and for those whom we know and love who are yet to follow Christ. By your Spirit, open their eyes, soften their hearts to see and love Christ. For only you can do that. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our crucified, risen Lord of glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, 
more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.